Amen. Praise God that we gather today with hope. Amen. And praise God for that. And welcome to Harvest and welcome to the opportunity we have to dig into God's word this morning. We're going to continue in our series in, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, if you want to get a head start there. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, we have one in the back for you. Um, we would love for you to take that as our gift to you, to read it, to, to dig into it, to love it, and to grow in and through it. And and I, it, it was such a privilege to pray for our students. And I want you to know, I got a text late last night from the guy leading worship at the, the youth retreat. And there are over 300 students from all up and down the East Coast gathered in Northeast Maryland. And he's like, you have no idea. The, this Holy Spirit's doing it again. He's moving so powerfully and profoundly. And these students are just worshiping with such passion and enthusiasm and freedom. So praise God for that. Amen. And so I can't wait to hear both as, as a dad who has two students there, two kids there, and also as a pastor for our, the, the different leaders and students that we had the privilege to go and, and all of, of, of our students as we work together cumulatively as a member of the, the Great Commission Collective to see God move and work. And so praise God for how he's working. Um, question for all of us, anybody experienced the phenomenon known as being hangry? Oh, oh, well, I got, I got good news for you. Did you know that being hangry is a real thing? Like even so much so that a few years ago, um, uh, Merriam-Webster, the Oxford English Dictionaries, they actually made hangry a real word. Um, so praise God for that. And even you're like, yeah, amen, man. <laughs> um, you know, and even, even beyond that, there was a study done in 2014 at The Ohio State University where they found that lower levels of blood sugars often lead one spouse to be angrier and lash out and with more aggressive behavior towards the other spouse. They did this research over 21 days and they found that the level of blood glucose in each spouse, when they measured it each night and in the morning, and when they measured it at night, it would accurately predict how angry they would or would not be with the spouse on that same night. Blood glucose levels can be brought up most quickly by eating carbohydrates or sugary foods. Now, the professor, uh, Professor Bushman, who led the study, actually said this. He said, people can relate to this idea that when they get hang hungry, they get cranky or even angry, hence hangry. We found that being hangry can even affect our behavior in a bad way, even in the most intimate of our relationships. So the research involved 107 married couples over three weeks, and all participants were given a doll that they were told was their spouse. And each night they were given zero to 51 pins, and based on the level of how angry or frustrated they were with their spouse, they would put that level of pins in the doll. The more angry or frustrated you were, the more Pins went in, and wouldn't you know it that the lower the, the glucose levels, the more pins went in. Then proving scientifically the fact that hangry is a real thing. At the end of the day, the professor said this, based on the research and the study, my best advice is simple, but it works. Before you have a hard conversation or a difficult conversation with your spouse, a coworker, or a friend, make sure you're not hungry. <laughs> Well, hangry is a, is a physical reality. We're going to see in the text today from John chapter 6 that hangry is actually a spiritual reality as well. This is when uh, what is being hangry spiritually is when we're not eating, we're not feasting on the Word of God and Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And when we are, uh, remove ourselves from a steady diet of that, we find ourselves to be shockingly what? Angry, grumpy, lacking in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Praise God, though, that as we're going to see from this text, from the words of Jesus, that today we have the vivid opportunity to turn our hangry into a pursuit of holy as we carbo-load on the bread of life that is Jesus Christ. How do you get rid of being hangry? Increase your carbohydrates. So today is an invitation to feast on the bread of Jesus Christ. When we do that, we experience life. He meets us where we are, and through the grace of God, we, we are brought from death to life. We are moved from being famished to feasting, laboring to believing, striving to thriving, and from being hangry to pursuing and becoming more holy. This is a free gift of God through his son, Jesus Christ. The question today is this, is will you receive this gift, and will you choose to feast on it? Will you embrace it? Where do you need to change your spiritual diet today? Where do you need to change your delight today? The big idea for the text you'll see on the screen and in your notes is this, is that Jesus satisfies us by graciously giving us not what we want, but what we need. 
Jesus graciously satisfies it. Not by giving us what we want, but what we need. And sometimes we struggle to see this reality because we think that Jesus' grace is contingent on us getting what we want. Can I tell you, praise God, Jesus doesn't give us what we want. Praise God, he doesn't give us what we deserve. Praise God, he gives us what we need. Himself, his grace, his love. We're gonna celebrate communion at the end of this uh, service today. So if you're watching with us online, please feel free to grab some elements you have in your kitchen or handy, uh, some juice or bread um, as we prepare to celebrate all that God is to us and all that Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for who you are. And we are just here today to declare the reality. We need you. We are nothing without you. So many of us are arriving this morning hangry um, because we, we aren't feeding ourselves on the bread that you have offered us. We, we have deprived ourselves uh, and we are spiritually in this place of deficiency because we, need, we have not chosen to delight in you. I pray the Holy Spirit that you would work and you would open our hearts through your grace and through your power to, to open us to the reality of your sufficiency today, Jesus, to change the delight and the desires of our hearts to be you, Jesus. I pray that you convict us of, of places that we are, we are trying to feast on and find satisfaction in that are not you, Jesus, because those will only lead us down a path of destruction and dissatisfaction. And Jesus, uh, just grab our hearts and don't let go today. I pray that you would reveal yourself to be who you are, as greater, as good, as God. And um, we just thank you so much for who you are, and it's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. So again, we're going to be in John 6 today. We're going to cover a good bit of ground, and today's an invitation that Jesus is offering you and I a seat at his table. It's for a hearty meal of grace and truth, filled with doctrine that is not meant to fill our bellies, but fill our hearts and our souls with loving, hope-fused, infused reality that Jesus came to save us and also to satisfy us, both for our salvation, but also our ongoing sanctification. And I, I, I would ask that, that as God has challenged me this week as I studied this text, that you, that you would join me in approaching this text in a couple different ways. One with a, a heart posture of being hungry, hungry for God's word and open to however he would move and work, but also that you would approach it humbly. So hungry and humbly. Humbly because we're gonna, we're gonna dig in some, some beautiful doctrine today that not everyone in this room or in the Christian faith has the same position on. But we wanna see what God's word says about it, not what tradition says about it, or maybe other things say about it. We want to open and dig into the text and see what it says and learn how to apply it and understand the reality of Jesus's sufficiency. And, um, and so I just pray that we would have a humbleness and a hungriness about ourselves because we love God's word at Harvest. This is what we are about and we want to learn it. We want to see what the author's original intent was in it. And then we want to apply it as best as we possibly can. Um, praise God for his grace that, that we can um, seek it and learn from it in every situation. And so we're going to turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 6, and we're going to look at the first couple verses here as we dig in on what does it look like to feast on who Jesus is. John 6, beginning of verse 22, it says this, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw, saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they said to him, Rabbi, where did you, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal." So through feasting on Jesus, we're going to look at, see four different benefits to our daily life as if you were in this grocery store and look at packaging on a food product and said, this is the benefit for you, 27 grams of protein, right? Uh, only two carbohydrates or whatever it is to get you through the day. So what are these, as we decide to feast on Jesus, what are the benefits to our spiritual nutrition, our daily life that come from it? The first is this, through feasting on Jesus, the first benefit from this text is that we receive grace even when seeking Jesus with wrong motivations. We receive grace even when we seek Jesus with a wrong motivation. Because remember, Jesus doesn't give us what we want. 
He gives us what we need. Praise God for that. Well, where do we see this in the text? On the next day, the crowd remained on the other side of the sea. If you remember back to last week, the first part of chapter six, Jesus had a very full day of ministry. The previous day, he had fed the 5,000. They're probably on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. He had fed the 5,000, which is really 20,000 when you factor in the women and children, give or take. He had then walked on water in the middle of the night. So the crowd that had been gathered and ate their bellies full, 12 baskets of leftovers. They saw the disciples get into a boat, Jesus go on a mountain. They missed Jesus walking on the water in the middle of the night to the other side, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee where Capernaum is. And so they're like, where's Jesus? They woke up and they're like, there's one less boat here and one less Jesus, where'd it go? But Jesus didn't get in the boat. How'd he get there? That's 24, when they saw that Jesus wasn't there nor the disciples, they got into their own boats and they sailed away to Capernaum. What were they doing? The tail end of verse 24, they were seeking Jesus. Seeking Jesus is never a bad thing, is it? And look at this, verse 25, when they found him, little anecdote here, Jesus is the worst hide-and-go-seek player of all time. He wants to be found. <laughs> he wants to be found by you. Whatever your heart posture is today, whether it's selfish or selfless, he wants to be found by you. Seek him, come to him, and experience his grace as we see in this text. They found him on the other side of the lake, and they say, Rabbi, teacher, when did you come here? Now, does Jesus answer their practical question? Nope but he goes right after their heart motivation. Jesus is first and foremost after your heart. He won't always ask, answer your practical question. He's under no obligation to answer your practical question. He desires your heart. He responds to them in 26, truly, truly, which means amen and amen. It's an emphatic, he's gonna repeat this over and over and over in this text. It's an emphatic amen, so be it. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because what? You ate your fill of the loaves. He's like, you're here because you want a second helping. You're here because you're hungry. You're here because you want more bread. You're here for the wrong motivation. You're here for a physical motivation that will never ultimately satisfy you. Do not labor for food that perishes, he says. Change your motivation. Change your heart. Change what you are seeking. Friends, today, are you looking here? Are you here for what Jesus can, the stuff Jesus can give you or who Jesus is to you? Again, Jesus, it's, it's okay to go to Jesus with an open heart and say, God, will you please do this, but then not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, is, in his grace, is calling out the wrong motivation because he wants them to avoid devastation because you know what? The things of this world will never satisfy them and will never satisfy you or I either. How do I know this? Look at the literal examples Jesus is using here. The previous day, they were physically hungry and they ate their full. So much so that there were how many baskets of leftovers? 12. And guess what? They woke up the next morning and what were they doing? I'm hungry again. I want more food. They're, they're pursuing the God of a little bit more. And how many of us are doing this right now? All I need to be satisfied is a little more money. Get me the promotion, get me the rank, get me the corner office, and then I'll be good. And then you get there, and is that good enough, honestly? Nope. What do you need? A little bit more. You can have the best dinner at the best steakhouse or the best crab house you can ever imagine. Michelin chef, guess what happens the next day? You're hungry again, right? Because the stuff of this world will never satisfy. It will never ever satisfied. And Jesus in his grace and his love is pointing this out to them. He's like, you're seeking the wrong thing because the signs are supposed to point to the Savior. The sign isn't the end in and of itself. The food is not the end in and of itself. The physical thing that Jesus is giving us is not the end in and of itself because Jesus is all about the eternal. Previously, the previous day, they're like, Jesus, become our king. We wanted, they tried to form a mob and make him a king. They're like, solve our political problem. Now, solve my food problem. And Jesus is like, none of those things will solve the real problem because the real problem is not outside you, it's inside you, it's your sin. I wanna point you to what is eternal even if you're focused on what is on earth. And friends, how many of us are approaching Jesus because all we're doing is focusing on what's on earth? And Jesus can do that. He can, he can give us anything we want. But that's not really what we need. He's like, I'm not gonna give you what you want, which is food that will perish. I'm gonna give you what you need, which is food that will give you eternal life. Praise God in his grace, Jesus doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what we need. Because what we want mostly in this world will not ultimately satisfy us. 
Only Jesus will satisfy us because only Jesus can solve our sin problem. Only Jesus paid the price for our sins. Like this crowd in this text, what are you looking to Jesus for today? What is your deepest need? If you were asked today, what would, what would you say? If we're, all, if the, we're honest, most of us would point quickly to a physical need. And that's not necessarily a wrong thing, but that's not their biggest need. The biggest need, the deepest need is spiritual. You can get a bigger house. You can get a better job, a nicer car. You can get the relationship. You can have the kids. You can have the 2.4 fizz. You can have the six-figure salary, the, the picket fence. You can have all of those things. You can move and move on. But you know what happens? You know what the reality is? Your greatest problem goes with you, the sin inside of you. And you can't solve it on your own. But where are you trying? Jesus, if you would only do X, Y, or Z, then I would be good. And Jesus is like, no, you wouldn't. You'd still be a sinner in need of a savior. Where do you need to get your eyes off the earthly and onto the eternal? Where do you need to get your eyes off your stuff and onto your sin? Because you'll never know how great a savior Jesus is until you first admit and acknowledge how great a sinner you are. Don't waste your life. Don't work for what won't last, but work, work and receive the food that endures. Where do we see the grace? We see it right here in verse 27. Do not labor. How many of you in this room right now are giving your life for food that will perish? You're working for a salary. You're working for a job. You're working for a promotion. You're working for to look great in the mirror, social media influence, whatever it is, the GPA, the scholarship, all those aren't bad things, but they can be easily idolatrous if they are the main thing. But look at the grace of God. Don't work for what perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life. Don't waste your life. Look, look at this. Don't miss this. Which the son of man will what? Give you. Praise God for his grace. It's a free gift. He will give it to you for free. It costs him everything. It doesn't cost us anything but to trust in him and to believe. We see his grace. Jesus doesn't push these people away. I might've been like, you gold diggers go away. All you want, you're never satisfied. You just want more and more and more and more. And anybody who works with kids or has kids can get that reality, right? You ungrateful, whatever. Jesus is like, no, I'm gonna lavish you grace. I'm gonna redirect you to your greater need. I'm gonna point you to me. Because what? The food that endures through eternal life, which the son of man will give you for on him, God the father has set his seal. A seal is like how, you, how they would seal an, an, an envelope with a letter inside so that you know what was inside was authentic. So Jesus here is declaring his divinity. He's saying, I am God, that God has sent to me. Again, it's one of the greatest themes for the entire book of John, the gospel of John as we go to John 20 and 31, like, so that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God. Because only God could pay, only a perfect God could pay the price for our sins. This is grace. Grace is our salvation through the free gift of God's grace through our faith. Where are you looking? Where are you looking to to save you? Because if you're looking for stuff and food that will perish, it will never save you. Only Jesus will save you. Praise God that Jesus doesn't give us what we want, but how many of us look at Jesus and go, I don't like you because you don't give me what you want? What I want. Praise God that Jesus gives me only what I need. Jesus, I don't like you. I, I feel like I deserve this. There's only one thing I love you, and I struggle with this in my own life. There's only one thing that I deserve. Only one thing. You know what that is? Eternity separated from God. That's what I earn with my sin death. But in his grace, Jesus gives me something I don't deserve. But how many of us are so focused on the earthly things we do deserve that we miss Jesus, that we refuse to surrender to him? Because we have this entitled expectation that is antithetical to the gospel. And we, are, we forget and our minds move so quickly to be aware of what the gospel actually is. Jesus, when we don't deserve it, dying for us to give us this free gift of eternal life that endures to eternal life. Praise God for that. And parents, you can relate. Like what would happen if you actually gave every one of your kids everything that they asked for? Like imagine that. Can I have 10 donuts today? Yep, it's a yes day all day. All day, every day is a yes day, right? Can I have 10 donuts? Can I, my eight-year-old, can I drive the car? Can I go there? Like, no, you can't. Why? Because you might get hurt. It's, you don't understand it. They throw a fit. Do you give it to them anyway? No, why? Because you love them. But how many of us look at God and go, why didn't you give me 10 donuts today or 10 G's? 
because I love you. I don't understand, and we're throwing a temper tantrum as opposed to submitting and loving and thanking, right? Praise God, he doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what we need. We have to trust him that he knows better than us, that his way is better than our way. Are you willing to do that? That's belief. Praise God for his grace. Jesus satisfies us by graciously giving us not what we want, but what we need. Where do we need to repent for demanding what we want and not delighting in Jesus giving what we need? And where do we need to repent that Jesus actually isn't what we want? (laughs) Even when we know he's what we need. (laughs) The second... Uh, the second benefit, life-transforming benefit as we feast on Jesus that, that we get here from this text is when we feast on Jesus, we receive eternal life through believing in the bread of life. The text continues in 28, verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers, well, they ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them the bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread Always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have sent that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes Him should have eternal life. Praise God. And I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him because they said, I am the, He said, I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the Son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Praise God. One of the interesting things about this text, if you want to go back and study on your own, again, we don't have the time to mine the, the total depths of this text today in the few short moments that we have today, but if you want to go back and underline every time in this text it says the word belief. Belief, 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 belief. I think you'll be blown away. John is hammering home through the words of Jesus, his thesis that we must believe. I've written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he is the Christ, and that through believing in him, you will have life in his name. That's John 20, 31. That's his whole purpose. He's hammering his main point home again and again. I pray that you get it. Verse 27 and 28, it's really important. The crowd grasps on to Jesus saying, do not labor for the food that won't last, that will perish. And all of a sudden their mind goes to, okay, I got to work for my salvation. He's like, what do we got to do to earn it? Verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Friends, there is nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. It's only through belief. It's God's work. It's God's grace. How many of, oh, if only I do a little bit better or give a little more money or stop doing like, a lot of bad things, just maybe settle for doing only a few bad things or not as bad things, then I'll be okay. It only takes one sin to earn your death penalty. And it took one savior to, to cover our death penalty for us. Praise God. And Jesus is like, look, verse 29, this is the work of God that what? That you be what? Believe in him who he has sent. So who needs to do the believing? What's the word before believe in verse 28, 29 there? that you believe, like belief is personal. The need is universal, but the decision is personal. The availability is universal, the b- decision is personal. You, if your spouse believes, your kids believe, your parent believes, your coworker believes, this person sitting right next to you right here in church believes, that does not, that cannot, that will not save you. You must believe. Now look, it's, it's a gift of God. This is the work of God that you believe. Praise God for his grace. And what am I believing in? 
in Jesus and whom, him whom he has sent. Believe means to put your full weight in, to put my full trust in, to believe and to surrender and to, to with my voice, say that Jesus, you are my Lord. You're my boss. I'm going to do it your way. I give up my rights. I am your bond slave, your bond servant. I want to live for you. I have died to myself so that I can live for you. And then I believe in my heart that, that God raised him from the dead. And then you will be saved. Jesus is the Christ. Only Jesus. God sent him, God raised him, and now God the Son reigns over us. Now in verse 30, what would your response to that be? The people are like, essentially, they're like, prove it. <laughs> like, they're like, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? It's like, dudes, where were you yesterday? Like, the feeding of the 5,000? <laughs> like, remember that? Like, oh my goodness. How short is your gospel memory? Now, how short is our gospel memory, right? I'm going to praise you on Sunday, but when Monday comes and my flat tire hits or the work expense comes or the illness sets in, like, Jesus, are you sure you're still God? Nothing's changed about Jesus. Nothing changes about Christ, even when our circumstances change. But how often we allow our circumstances to drive how we view Jesus as opposed to allowing who Jesus is allow us to drive how we view our circumstances. Jesus never changes. But what, what does he do? What sign do you do that we would see you and believe? What work do you perform? Man, they're, 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 as Paul Tripp says, they're gospel amnesiacs. They're Jesus amnesiacs. They forget. And then they demand, they keep this bread theme going, right? Because again, it's on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. And they go, our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. He gave them bread to eat from heaven. And they're like, what's the man in the wilderness? So when you're reading the Bible, it's important when a reference comes like this to understand the context in the text. And so Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God he is he who came down from heaven and gives life to the world. The people are like, sir, give us this bread always. So let's take a moment. You can turn with me if you want to, but I'm going to read it for you from Exodus 16. What is this manna and how does it connect here? Because it's, it's, it's important. So the first seven or eight verses of, of Exodus chapter 16, I'll read them over you. You're welcome to flip there if you want. But this is a story of the Exodus. And the context here is this. The people, God had used Moses to break them free from the captivity to the Egyptians, right? They've been there for many, many, many years, 400 years. And he used 10 plagues, and then he covered them on the 10th plague with the blood of the lamb so that the, the angel of death did not kill their firstborn. Pharaoh said, fine, get out of here. Finally, have your way. They go, and they're, they're moving, and the Egyptians are closing in behind them, and they're like terrified at the, the Red Sea. They think they're doomed by the obstacle in front of them and the opposition behind them. Anybody can relate to that this morning? Say amen, right? You're feeling like, I'm stuck. I can't go anywhere. And then God does this thing. He said, just you be still and watch me do my thing. Exodus 14, 14. Watch me work. He parts the Red Sea. The Israelites go through, he crashes the Red Sea on top of the Egyptians. And then in Exodus 15, they sing one of the most beautiful worship songs in all of scripture. And the ladies break out the tambourines and they're moving their bodies. They're worshiping the Lord with passion, with power and majesty. And then 16 comes and man, they've forgotten. They're in the wilderness, they're in the desert, and all they can see is their circumstance and situation, and they forgot the great God that broke them out with a purpose. And it says this, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, interesting name, right? Which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. All of them. And the people of Israel said to them, "Would you ha would we would that we have died by the hand of the land uh, the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." And then the Lord said to Moses, "Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, and that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare that, they bring it in. It will be twice as much as they gather daily." So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, "At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt." Praise God for that. But man, look at their hearts for the people of God then. Man, I wish I was back in captivity in Egypt. At least I had good food, even if I was in bondage. 
I would have died, but I at least would have had control in some way. I would have known what was coming. And now, God, you've left, led me out to this wilderness just to kill me. You see how the negative, how they were assuming the worst, how all of a sudden, just because they couldn't see it, they thought God couldn't do it. They've forgotten so quickly the God that broke them out, the God that parted the same sea, Red Sea, is the same God that would provide for them again. And how quickly do we forget? How quickly do we run back into the bondage of our sin? Oh, to go back to my addiction because at least it, it gives me an escape from my current situation. God, I, I, this, this is hard over here. Let me just go back to the bottle or the pill or the whatever. Let me go back to that relationship that I know is not healthy, that is causing me to sin or that I'm getting sinned upon in, but at least it's comfort. At least it's familiar because the out here, the out of control, the unknown is just too much for me. We need to trust God. We need to surrender our control. God will never lead you to a place he won't provide for you in, ever, ever. And Jesus is like, in back in John, he says, I am the true and greater manna. This fed you for a day. I'm here to feed you for a lifetime. God made it rain manna before. Isn't that awesome? God made it rain bread. That's awesome. <laughs> like put that on a coffee cup. Someone make it rain, God. <laughs> and not only am I the great, true and greater manna, I'm the true and greater Moses. I am here to lead you out of your slavery once and for all, the slavery of sin and into eternal life. God sent Moses, God sent me. Will you trust me? Will you give up control and trust me? Because just like the people in Egypt, you and I are right now wandering through a wilderness and a desert of sin in our lives. In a brokenness, in a broken world, a spiritual wilderness where we desperately need the provision of God. And you're like, God, I don't know how you're gonna do it. And he's like, I'll do it again. My mercy is enough tomorrow morning. I'm gonna send some more manna. I need it now. He's like, trust me. I want it my way. Trust me. I want you to do this. this. No, I'm going to do it my way, but I don't think that's best. I know you think that's best, but praise God, I'm not going to give you what you want because it will end in disaster. I'm going to give you what you need. Trust me. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? Will you look to him? Will you allow him to be your provision? And Jesus, and they're like, the people are like, oh man, sir, give us this bread always. And he's like, okay. And he goes there, I am the bread of life. You want this bread? It's me. The first of seven I am statements by Jesus, declaring his divinity, declaring his sufficiency, declaring his sovereignty, offering whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's that believe word again. And he's talking eternally. He's talking spiritually. The invitation is open to everyone. Whoever comes to me, talk about our come and see series. This is a come and see that Jesus is sufficient. Come and see that he is a savior. Come and see that he is the bread of life. Come and see that he is enough. It's an open invitation to every single one of us in this room. Will you come and see Jesus? And what do you do when you come and see? Choose to believe. Will you choose to believe? Will you choose to trust? Will you choose to let go of our striving for control that is debilitating devastating and holding us in bondage and trust the one who is in control of it all. Will you believe? Now, what does it mean to believe? Believing doesn't always come by seeing. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. You know, seeing is believing. That's a common phrase right here. Spiritually seeing is not always believing. You can sit in this room and see Jesus do amazing things in your friend over there and choose to not believe. You can see Jesus work in our society around us, in our culture, and transform and change. And you can choose yourself not to believe. Jesus is like, you saw me. You saw me multiply five loaves and two fishes into myriads of food. And yet, you're struggling to believe. Spiritually speaking, seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing seeing ourselves for who we are, sinners in need of a savior, seeing Jesus for who he is, the perfect son of God who lived a perfect life, fully God, came down, took on humanity, fully God, fully man, and laid down his life, took our place, the gospel in four words, Jesus in my place, paid my price so that in him, through him, through his righteousness, he takes my sin and gives me his righteousness that I can have eternal life to see Jesus that way and then to believe in him. That's believing. Believing that he's my only hope. So you might be like, how do I know if, I'm truly, if I've truly believed? 
Well, the Bible teaches this, that the, the fruit of belief, the evidence of belief is putting your full weight on Jesus. One, it's repentance, that I repent, that I, I am genuinely broken by my depravity and my sin, and I tr- effort through the power of the Holy Spirit to turn from my sin and to turn and follow my Savior. And it's trust. It's surrender. It's faith. And it results in a changed life. Acts 2, the people are cut to the heart by the message of God. Peter, what should we do? Repent and, bu- repent and be baptized. Baptism is an outward representation of in- inward change. I have a new ma- master. And if you haven't been baptized as a believer, I would love to talk to you about that. I want to follow the Lord. I have a new way of life. The old is gone, the new has come. As one, as this has been said before, if Jesus hasn't changed you, he hasn't saved you. If you aren't saved by, if you aren't pursuing new things, if you don't have a new appetite, the old life gone, and there's tons of verses to back that up. And praise God for his grace and sufficiency. We are saved by God's grace through faith. Now let's, let's slow down a little bit and get into a couple, some deeper waters here for a second that I think are really, really important. So how does God's grace, God's grace saves us, but how does it work for us in salvation? In this text, we see a lot of God at work in the process of salvation. Fancy word for soteriology. And so we're gonna dip into this, but I wanna dip into it with a, humble, with a humble heart, knowing the reality that there are many, many people that will you know, spend eternity with Jesus to have some different views on this and some slightly different views and some significantly different views. There are many people in this room that have different views on this. And that's okay, because the reality is as long as we get the main thing, the main thing, that we are sinners in need of a savior, that we are saved by grace through faith, that's the most important thing. God has chosen to reveal Deuteronomy 29, 29, what he has chosen to reveal to us. And he has his secret things for how some certain things work together in his infinite wisdom. He hasn't chosen to make abundantly clear to us that I look forward to asking him in heaven and you can join me in that. But that's a part of humility. And a, but we wanna, we wanna think biblically. We wanna dig in deeply and pursue wholeheartedly the truth of God's word. One of the, the famous examples for how this is how the different views of, of how salvation actually works, which Jesus outlines here in this text, have actually divided people and friends and churches and places is, is some people that I studied a lot in, in seminary and wrote a few papers on, but George Whitfield and Charles and John Wesley. They were good friends and God used each of them profoundly. And we don't have time to go into great depths on that, but Whitfield was an itinerant preacher up and down the East Coast. Somehow without a microphone, we preached to thousands of people and God used him. John and Charles Wesley, a huge prominent figure. Both of these guys were, all three of these were huge prominent figures in the early Methodist church. Charles Wesley wrote countless hymns, you know, and over and over and over, but they had different views on aspects of salvation or how the, the, the inner workings behind it and it impacted negatively their relationship. But we can't allow that to happen. We have to hold, walk humbly as we hold deeply. So how do, we, how do we do this? We have soft hearts, but we also want to dig deeply into God's word. We want to pursue it. So one, God's grace in our salvation, five ways in this text that we see God's grace working for our salvation. And I just want you to know my own theology has grown in this personally. I don't have the market corner on this, but I, I want to pursue the Lord in this and, and I'm continuing to do so. And um, people way, way, way smarter than me that we will all spend eternity with have different views on this. And so let's just hold it loosely, but let's dig deeply. The first is this, God's grace and our, our salvation, we see it in reconciliation. We see that God sent Jesus, that God created us in the image of God and he wants to restore an active relationship with us. And that can only be done through Jesus. He, God wants to be with you for all of eternity, but he needed to send his son, which he did actively. And there are so many copious amounts of uh, over and over and over in this text and just a couple references there, but it even happens more and more that it's the, Jesus was sent from heaven by God, intentionally, missionally, on purpose. The whole thematic of these 66 verses is God pursuing reconciliation with you, pursuing you, coming to find you and seeking you out. Into our mess, he doesn't wait for us to clean up. He desires a restored relationship with you, which leads to the second point of God's grace in our salvation because we don't earn these things, but it's God's initiation. And we're not going to put any any man-made labels on some of these things, but we're going to look textually, specifically at verse 44 right here, where Jesus himself says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So unless God draws us from the mouth of Jesus, we can't come. 
God is initiating. He has an initiation role. Now, God exists outside of time. How do all these nuances work together? Like, I got a finite mind. He's got an infinite mind. Hopefully in heaven, we'll, we'll learn more deeply at one point. But you don't get more clearly than 644 right here. God exists outside of time. Again, I, I can't process all of it completely, but it's really important to know that no one comes to the Father and no one comes to Jesus unless God draws now, what does that mean? That's a 30,000 foot view. If you, if you drill down a little bit closer, I think Paul's writing in Ephesians 1 is super helpful. You'll see it on the screen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his what? Grace, which he lavished upon us. Praise God. Amen that we can become family when we were once forsaken, that we who were once hostile can be made holy through Jesus Christ as God draws us to him. Now, there's tons of great theological terms and words. We don't have time to dig into them. How do they all work together? Again, that, you know, God knows. We just know it's in the Bible and we want to apply it. We want to love it. We want to thank God for it as opposed to fighting over it. Now, God's sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. So, so half of you who are a little uncomfortable a little bit ago, the other half of you are about to get more uncomfortable right now, right? God's sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. We see it in the text over and over and over. The word believe, you must believe. Whoever comes must believe. You must make the choice individually to believe. There is a human responsibility aspect for you to choose to believe. Over and over and over in the gospel of John. Again, there are nuances there and, and roles of different, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but it is clear, crystal as day that we, you, must choose to believe individually, personally, and have you done that yet? Because the offer of salvation is available for you right here, right now, by grace, through faith. We see over and over and over again that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all actively working in the process of our salvation. Praise God for that. That God sent Jesus and eventually he raised Jesus up from the dead, that Jesus pays the price for our sin. Fancy word is atoning. He purchased our payment. He purchased us. The Holy Spirit, Titus 3, is regenerating us. The Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, is sealing us. Praise God for that. And you might be like, how do these two things work together? Where well, I, I like to quote my buddy. Well, he's not really, I've never met him personally, neither of you. But Charles Spurgeon, a great famous pastor, who says, when asked about how do these two things work, how they, can they coexist? He goes, I never try to reconcile friends. May we not have so much theological pride that we negate praising God for who he's working in the salvation of because we're so focused on trying to figure out the things of God to fit them in our box. May we approach it with a humility and, and yeah, we want to think biblically. We want to dive in. We want to come greater understanding. Let's get after it, but let's hold it loosely. You know, in, in, the, in the realm of what is God doing here? And there are things that we just can't fully grasp with our finite minds. But what is infinitely true is that we were once sinners and now we have the opportunity for salvation through Jesus Christ. Praise God for that, amen? And may we anchor in that. So the fourth thing of God's grace active in our salvation is this, satisfaction, that God's grace satisfies all his requirements for us through Jesus, that God is unconditionally holy and he's uncompromisingly loving. He will not yield his holiness, which means sin has a requirement, a penalty for it, and that God cannot and won't negate it. But he sent Jesus to pay for it. That's amazing, isn't it? Sin comes with it, a death penalty. All, well, Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All means all, and it's all of us. Romans 6.23, but the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You earn death. You earn death. That's the one thing in this life that we have earned. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise God for that, amen. And Romans 10.9, but if, if you... Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be what? Saved. Praise God. That Jesus satisfies the requirements 
the sin requirements, the payments, and he gives us his righteousness. And God sees righteousness when he looks at us. Manna can't save you. No, only the Messiah can. Whatever your manna is, theological information can't save you. Your job can't save you. Your spouse can't save you. Your kids can't save you. Your resume can't save you. Your college degree can't save you. Your greatest accomplishment can't save you. And your greatest failure can't keep you from salvation (laughs) when it's compared to the grace of God. That God's grace covers our greatest failures. His mercy meets us in our greatest need. Do you truly believe today? Because through believing, there's freedom. Because the fifth and final aspect is security. God's grace secures us through Jesus. In verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me, I will never cast out. Praise God for that. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Praise God for that. Ephesians 1 talks about how the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of our future inheritance in eternity. That once you put your genuine faith in the Lord, that there is nothing and no one that can take that from you, including yourself. I heard once a pastor recently say when it comes to eternal security and losing your salvation, thought of it, if I could, I would, but I can't, so I won't. (laughs) Praise God for that. (laughs) May we feast on God's grace today. May you feast on this bread. Jesus doesn't satisfy you by giving you what you want. He satisfies you by getting you what you need himself. Jesus gives himself for you. The third life-giving, transforming aspect as we feast on the bread of life is this, that we get is through feasting on Jesus, that we receive mercy even when grumbling that Jesus isn't sufficient. So we already looked at verse 41 and through 44 as we saw the, the believers again, or the people of God, not believers, but we saw the people of God begin to grumble again. And in verse 45, picking that up, it is written in the prophets, then they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone who has seen the Father, except he who is from the Father, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may, one may eat of it and not die. So what Jesus is, is saying here in the middle of their grumbling, you go back to 41, so the Jews grumbled about him. They go, isn't this just the guy that, we know his parents. He's just a carpenter from Nazareth. How could he be a Christ? He can build me furniture, but now he's talking about giving me eternal life. Who does this guy think he is? And they began to grumble against him. Oh, that we wouldn't take the riches of Jesus for granted. But look at how Jesus responds. Man, if me, I'm losing my patience. Jesus, nuh-uh. Praise God, Jesus isn't any of us. He responds with grace. They questioned him. They insulted his family. Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourself. No one can come to me unless the Father draws to me. And he begins to lay out their path of salvation. He, he contrasts how he is a greater manna. He points to the reality in verse 49 that your fathers ate, and ate the manna in the wilderness and they still died. They ate the earthly food and they still died, but eat the food of me and you will never, ever, ever die. It's God's mercy that removes a, something that we do deserve. He removes the punishment by placing it on Jesus from us. They mocked Jesus. He lavished mercy upon Jesus. Praise God for that. He put their sin on his account. In our spiritual desert, let no mirage of any short-sighted manna drive us or control us today. What Jesus is saying here is profound and beautiful. I am what you need, and he's saying it to us too. Jesus looks at them and says, I am what you need, even if I am not what you want. And I will give you what you need even if I am not what you want. You reject me, I will die for you anyway. You mock me, I will give you my mercy anyway. What love, what a savior. Peter writes this about the Lord. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's 2 Peter 3, 9. 
Friends, where are you responding to, with grumbling to Jesus right now instead of gratitude? Where are you rejecting Jesus instead of receiving him? You might be spiritually hangry this morning because your diet is light on Jesus. May you carbo-load on Jesus today. Gratitude comes when we view that our sufficiency is found in anything outside of Jesus. I mean, grumping, grumbling comes when we view that our sufficiency is found in anything outside of Jesus or that Jesus cannot be our sufficiency. Jesus, you're not giving me my car, so therefore I'm gonna grumble against you. You're not giving me good health. You're not giving me a, a kid or a spouse or a X, Y, Z. Now, those things aren't in and of themselves, but those things will never satisfy you in and of themselves. Gratitude comes when we realize and we learn and we anchor in that all of our satisfaction, everything we ever need can be found in and through only Jesus. And then we are eternally grateful because no matter what our external circumstances are, we always have a reason to be thankful. Where's your heart today? Where's your seeking your satisfaction? Where do you need to turn from being grumbling to gratitude? And can you try to, I dare you this afternoon, try to be, try to grumble and be grateful at the same time. It's impossible. So where's the focus of your heart? Ultimately, what it's asking you, are you seek, what it's boiling down to, are you seeking your satisfaction in your circumstances or your situations or are you finding them in Jesus? Because when you find them in Jesus, you will eat and be full. You can have poor spiritual health, but you can be very grateful. I mean, poor physical health, but you can be full of spiritual vitality. The fourth life, the transforming, future-altering benefit from feasting on the bread of Jesus is this, the fourth and final one, that we receive abundant life, not just eternal life, but abundant life through the sufficiency of the bread of life. Look with me at verse 51. Jesus, after having been mistreated, rejected, mocked, made fun of his parents and his family, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone, if anyone eats of this bread, again, look at the availability of the word anyone, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of this world is what? My flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As a, as a living father sent me, I live, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. There's a lot here. We don't have tons of time to dig deeply into it, but there are a couple of really important things. One is anchor in verse 51 and look at this, highlight it, underline it. This should just scream gratitude from our hearts. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone, which means you, put your name in there. If Dan, if Nate, if, if anyone, Joe, eats of this bread that came from heaven, he will live forever. Praise God for that, amen. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is what is my flesh. Jesus will give his life so that you can have life. He's not outsourcing our salvation. He will, he's purchasing our salvation. Praise God. It's only him that can fulfill the deepest yearning that we have. Paul, uh, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that we all, yearn, our hearts yearn for eternity. Inside each of you is a spiritual hunger for eternity, whether you realize it or not. And you might be trying to fill that, that heaven-sized, that Jesus-sized hole with a bottle, with a girl, with a guy, with an accolade, with a dollar sign, with a job, with a title, with a resume. It will never fill you. Only Jesus can. Some of the most miserable people in the world are some of the wealthiest. The one with the most power, the greatest job. The other thing that we really, really wanna know is that we wanna have a high view of God's word here at, Har at Harvest and in, in life. And I'm so thankful that you do, that you pursue it. But what does that mean? It means understanding the author's original intent of the passage and seeking to apply it as best as we can to the grace of God. So I wanna say this as delicately yet directly as I, as I can, because I think there's a responsibility to say it. 
that when we look at this text, when you look at verse 52, the, just, the Jews were disputed amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat and all the subsequent words that come after that talking about Jesus when he says, you will eat my, what, you will eat my body, you will eat my flesh and drink my blood. There are some certain faith traditions out there that take this very literally and believe that when we partake in communion, that the bread of the bread becomes Jesus's body and that the, that the, the juice or the wine, depending on your tradition, becomes Jesus's blood. Lovingly, this text is not about communion. The author's original intent is not talking about communion. So to take this text, to use it as a basis to apply that meaning of communion is not correct biblically. And so we want to be people of the word. We want to dig in. This text is coming right after the feeding of the 5,000. That's why Jesus is using the metaphor of life, the bread of life. He's talking metaphorically about, some, about a spiritual reality. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood is, ta- is a reference to putting your full faith in the Lord, to choosing to have your diet to be Jesus Christ, to trust in his death, his giving his life, his blood shed for you as your source of faith and hope for all of eternity. It's not talking about communion. Every time in scripture speaks directly about communion in 1 Corinthians 11 and the rest of the gospels, it talks about Jesus says, this is to do this in remembrance of me. And so I think it's really, really important to understand that. And I say that delicately and and lovingly because we wanna apply this correctly. But when you look at verse 56 too, when you talk about not just eternal life, but abundant life, abundant life here on earth, the life that you were made for, the life that is pursuing eternity, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. Abundant life comes through abiding, abiding on Jesus, eating, carboloiding, eating the bread of life on a daily basis. Remain, abide means to remain in, to dig into his word, remain into his word, remain into his biblical community, remain in to his purposes, remain attaching yourself to the branch. Are you doing that? Because that is a source of abundant life. And however you walked in here, Liff, and maybe you're like, what's my purpose? Abide in Jesus, that's your purpose. And out of the abundance of that, work for Jesus. You don't work for Jesus detached from abiding in it. That John 15 will talk a lot about that in the future. But through abiding comes abundance. The life that God created you to have. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. Only when you hunger and thirst for Jesus' righteousness will you experience satisfaction. Or is that what your hunger is? Is that what your spiritual appetite is this morning to do the work of God, the will of God, the way of God, for the purposes of God, through the strength of God? Or not? Because if it's not, you will never be satisfied. You're like, I'm not satisfied. It's because you're not hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God. You're not filling yourself up on the bread of God. Sadly, many of us care more about our physical food and body than our spiritual food and soul. We cut corners. We'll drive 30 minutes to our favorite organic grocery store, but to get to church on time or come to small group, let alone, eh, I don't know. We might make sure we go to the gym or CrossFit a couple hours a day or a week, but we can't find time to read our Bible or pray. We're willing to spend seven to $10 for a gallon of our favorite nut-based milk at Whole Foods, but we can't seem to find the money to tithe. What are you feasting on today? What is your diet? What is your appetite? The desires of our heart, the delights of our heart drive the decisions of our life. We delight in the Lord today. The psalmist says, Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who, ref- who takes refuge in him. Friends, this morning, Jesus is asking you to taste and see. To not just look at, but to delight in him, to take him and, and feast. Not nibble, but feast on him, his goodness and his grace. Will you do that? Because remember that Jesus, the bread of life, gave his life so that you might have life. Jesus, the bread of life, was broken for you. Will you believe in him today? Will you trust in him today? Will you look to him today and receive the mercy and grace that you desperately need that can only come from him? In a moment, we're gonna, we're gonna sing a song and I would ask that you would remain seated during this song and allow the song to come over you to wash over you, to be sung over you as we prepare our hearts to celebrate communion. To remember what Jesus, is, what Jesus has done for us and who Jesus is to us. The Bible teaches about communion, that it's remembrance. And we're gonna read that in a second.
but we also need to prepare our hearts to come to the table of the Lord. And we do that by quieting our hearts and, ask, and cleaning, asking the Holy Spirit to clean our hearts. And so as this song is sung over, it's a newer song to us and we'll sing a reprise of it after communion. Would you just allow the words to wash over your soul? Will you go to your hearts before the Lord and say, God, is there any unclean way in me? And then confess that sin. In communion, communion is for believers only. We have practiced open communion here at Harvest. You don't have to be a member here to partake in communion, but we do ask that you would be a member of the faith family of Jesus Christ. And so if you've not made the decision to put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, number one, I would ask that you, with all my heart, that you would do that right now. Right here, right now. Feast on the bread of life. Come to him, not as you are, but as you, not as you are, but as you are. A sinner in need of a Savior and allow his grace to cover you. If you haven't quite made that decision yet, please politely refrain from taking the communion in the cups ahead of you. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Father, I just thank you so much for the reality that you were broken for us. That it was through your flesh, you were sent from heaven. You were sent to die. You were sent to open a way for us to experience eternity. You did not consider with such great love for us, the cross too high a price to pay for us. You offered yourself fully and freely, sufficiently. And Jesus, may you turn our hearts to you and may we put our trust in you. May we believe you for our salvation, but also for our sanctification. May we seek after you. May we feast on you and delight in you today and every day. And Jesus, we are so thankful for who you are. Jesus, we love you. In your mighty name we pray, amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.